As we're now well into the swing of the summer term, the end is firmly and finally in sight for our GCSE and A-level students. Unfortunately for many, that goalpost can still seem a little blurry. We know that, like last year, disrupted and unequal access to schooling has resulted in the cancellation of exams. And we also know that teachers will be making the assessment of the grades. But just what are the implications for our young people? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad things, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. Now, these are normal teams, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at the alternative arrangements for grading and what it means for students. I'm thrilled to be joined by Colin Hughes. Colin is the Chief Executive of AQA, which is England's largest provider of academic qualifications. In fact, AQA sets the exams for around half of all of the GCSEs and A-levels sat in the country. Before joining AQA in June 2020, Colin was the Managing Director of Publishers Collins Learning and has also chaired the Education Publishers Council. Our young people have had a trying few months. It can be difficult enough for teens to motivate themselves at the best of times when there's a definite endpoint of an exam. While our students understand the situation, it's also fair to say that many feel that they have more questions than they've got answers, especially when it comes to the detail of how they'll get a grade this summer. One of the issues that comes up time and again is this question of consistency. Now, it isn't helped by media and rumour mill giving fuel to the fear that schools and teachers might be more generous or more lenient than their own school. Colin, this was always going to be tricky. We're used to the idea of standardisation and fairness coming from exams. So can we really hope to achieve a consistency across the whole country this year? Yeah, it's a central question, but there's a question that almost sits in front of that, Nathan, actually, before you even start to tackle that, which changes the question. And it's this, it's that how can we expect what we're doing this year to in some way be a replicant of an exam season? And the answer is we can't. And that's probably the most crucial thing, I think, for people to get their heads around. There's a deep yearning, and heaven only knows, I sit in the same place. And this is the thing that I guess I would want everybody really to get their heads around. Once you cancel exams, that's it. Exams are cancelled. And we're doing something different. And it's really, really fundamental that, because once you cancel exams, once you move to teacher assessment, you create a completely different approach to grading and qualification and certification. And that's fine. What we're then obliged to do is try and maintain some sort of consistency across time and into the future and so on. But what are we really then focused on? What we're really focused on is here's this 
large group of young people who have been appallingly afflicted by the pandemic and continue to be, you know, for heaven's sake, what is our duty? Our duty is to focus solely on those students and see what we can do to enable them to move on to the next stage of their lives without being compromised or treated unfairly and so on and so forth. And we've got to do that, therefore, in the absence of things like you refer to in your question, you know, we can't nationally moderate using this system. And so the question is not, can we get absolute consistency with regards to, you know, grading? Why can't we do that? It's not actually simply because of the thing that you posit, which is this teacher down the road might be a bit more generous than this teacher up the road. There's actually a much, much more profound reason than that, even if we could call in, you know, all of these grades, look at the material on which they're based and then try and moderate them. It actually would not be technically possible. And the reason is that they're using different pieces of work taken at different pieces of time on different topics. You know, the teacher down the road may well be assessing a student who's undergone a different body of learning. And what we're asking them to do, whereas an exam will try and, if you like, take a picture of somebody's understanding of a particular range of topics at a moment in time, that's not what's going on here. And so you wouldn't actually be comparing apples and apples. That's a sort of fundamental thing that sits at the base of all of this. So what we've got to be focused on is not so much can we replicate what a nationally moderated system brackets exams would do, but can we instead focus on the question of what is it that these students need for, if you like, the next place they go, their college or the university or whatever, or, or employer, frankly, to be able to have a sense of what that student was capable of at a given moment in time. And that's what we're trying to do imperfectly. I think that's really interesting and wholeheartedly agree with, with all of that. I think that the issue seems to be very much that how do you create an exam result without an exam? So actually, would the problem have been better solved if we hadn't have tried to maintain a level of consistency with previous years or this notion of being able to compare the results that a student had this year with last year by calling it something different. Is the issue really in trying to get to eights and nines and sevens and sixes? Of course it would be. The question is, what would you replace it with and how would people understand that and what kind of public confidence could that command? And the answer is it'd be really difficult. And we've had nearly no time to do this in any way, but to do all of that in that time available. I mean, if you were to try and program a reform like this properly you'd want two or three years to do it we've had three less than three months in which to do it it's too tall an order under the circumstances which is the other thing i think it's really important that we all understand and try and understand in advance of what's going to happen this summer is we have everybody involved with the best possible will in the world is trying to pull off something that you know ideally we would spend a lot more time thinking through and implementing having said that the level of collaboration between the boards, between Ofqual, the regulator, with the Department for Education, with indeed teachers themselves and their associations, the level of collaboration there has been absolutely stupendous. I mean, I would argue unprecedented, actually. I don't think there's been a time when there's been such a degree of cooperation and collaboration to achieve this. But having said all that, could we do it differently? I think the answer to that very simply is... At the end of the day, students, parents, and probably teachers too, actually, but certainly students and parents kind of want to be able to feel that they've got conventional certificates with AQA on them and a grade on it, you know, and 
I kind of get that. I sympathise with that. So I don't think we could go down that road. What we do need to do, and this is very central to what sits behind your question there, is not try to get too hung up on comparing things back one year or two years or indeed actually forward a year or two years. We need instead to get our heads around the fact that this is an extraordinary period of time. This is a group of students who've endured extraordinary circumstances at school and just recognise that and accept it and, you know, if you like, take it in and not try to cling on to the notion that in spite of the pandemic, everything's going to even out. It's not. It's not like that. No, absolutely. And you can feel that most, I think, for the students who are taking it this year, as well as the students who will be taking it next year. And of course, let's not forget the students who didn't get a chance to have their exams last year. And actually, that can seem like an odd thing to say, to get the chance to have exams, given that actually they are a source of anxiety for a great deal of people. But what we do know, I think, coming out of this is certainly that exams have a strong role to play in the way that we can standardise and normalise how students fare against each other. I agree, and you won't be surprised to hear that CEO of an exam board endorse that last remark. (laughs) However, to be fair, what I would say, and we, Nathan, have a student advisory group at AQA, so we we take the student, and we we survey students, we survey teachers all the time, you know, because it's really important to us, you know, do they like these exams? What's wrong with the exams? What's wrong with the way we administer and deliver them? Things like anxiety and stress, incidentally, come up a lot. You won't be surprised to hear. And we try to do everything we can to cope with that in normal circumstances. In these extraordinary circumstances, we've got new kinds of stress, different kinds of stress, which I think is what you're highlighting. And that's very, very well understood. I must say that our own student advisory group and the surveying we've done perhaps contrary to what you're reading in the headlines from one day to the next, is not exactly sort of militating in favour of a revolution in an abandonment of GCSEs or examinations per se. I don't believe that there's a great sort of public groundswell to do away with examinations. There's a genuine and proper heightened public interest in so what are exams really for and what are they good at and why do we do this in this way and the answer is along the lines that you're suggesting there is that the exams happen to be quite good at doing a particular set of things but that's not to say there are other things to measure and other ways to measure them and you know it doesn't matter that I run an exam board I actually agree with that I think that's completely right I also utterly welcome this kind of level of public debate about exams and what are they for. I think it's been unfortunate historically that the exams have been seen as a bit of a black box. You don't look into it until it crashes. You know, we've opened the black box. That's fine. I'm relaxed about that. Let's have a look inside that black box and start to understand why do we do exams? What are they good for? Maybe actually are there other things that we should be doing to supplement exams, I think that's a very proper debate. And I think it was interesting when you started and you were mentioned about what we really need to be doing and focusing on, and actually what you said was it is exactly what you are doing, is focusing on the best interests of the students and making sure that they're equipped or ready for the next step, whether that's further education or employers. And I think that something that we've seen and something from my own experience as an employer who's looked through more CVs than I care to remember, is actually there is a role that exams have that isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all. And so I do think that this level of public scrutiny, as you say, or awareness, will be quite interesting to see whether or not it's a time for reflection. I noted as well, although we're straying off the point a little, that AQA are 
in favour of looking at least at the post-results admission into university as a way of sort of changing and, and really looking at what the entire system is about rather than just the one piece. I think what's really important to keep reminding ourselves about is that and again, I think this is partly what you're alluding to here is the grades are not the be all and end all, you know, and again, totally accept that. I think it's really interesting what's happening this year is helping to remind people that, OK, we're going to make sure that these students get their grades, but, you know, that's never enough. And if you talk to universities, and by the way, you know, I've been the chair of one university, and I'm currently chair of another university in what's known as the sort of post-92 part of the sector. And, you know, so I'm acutely aware of this from that end of the educational spectrum. And, you know, universities don't just look at grades, they look at an awful lot of things. And, you know, I think they've been a little bit frustrated in recent weeks, when people are saying, you really must have a look at this as well as the grade. And they're saying, Oh, we do actually <laughs> already. And the same is true. And you know this, Nathan, the same is true of people who are moving on to, let's say, FE college or a sixth form college from their school. By the way, let's remember when we talk about doing away with GCSEs, let's remember that roughly seven out of 10 students in England change venue at 16. So without something that they carry with them to say, this is what I've done, this is what I can do, et cetera, et cetera, then you could get yourself into a tricky situation. But anyway, my point here is that it's incumbent on the whole system, teachers at the school that you're in, to say, okay, they've got these grades, but this is also what they're good at. And similarly, the places that they're moving on to, to understand that a student's performance, aptitude, capabilities, you know, propensities is wider than whatever it may be, eight grades, GCSE or whatever. I absolutely agree with that. And I actually really, in a funny way, I'm quite encouraged by the degree to which this debate is improving people's understanding of what actually already goes on. Mm. No, absolutely. But unfortunately, we can't escape the importance and the weightiness of the grade as it stands. And while we can reflect and agree on the difficulties and the imperfections of what we have, at the end of the day, come 12th of August, there will be hundreds of thousands of people clutching their GCSE certificates that will have had their numbers on them that will qualify them to go on to the next one. In order to get there, I wonder if you could, and actually, so also looking at it, we've agreed that teachers are in a difficult position because they can only really look at their own cohort. Standardisation across the country is going to be not an impossible for a teacher to do, let alone for the examining boards. So I wonder if you could just touch on the kinds of support that are out there for teachers that can help them to make fair assessments and fair grading of the students that they've got. That's really where we've been bending our minds, if you like, what I've described as a huge collective effort to try and come up with all the possible things we can do to improve that performance and, frankly, not get into the situation we got into last year, you know, if I'm really bald about it. And the answer to that is that we have put in place a very rigorous process, and process is key here. And the second thing that's really key is providing teachers and schools, colleges, centres, examination centres, with as much information as they need to be able to work out how can they go about compiling that grade? You know, what kind of work can they look at? When they look at that work, what should they be looking for? When they look at it and think, in relative terms, should I be placing this student here or a little bit higher or a little bit lower? What kind of thing might that be? Now, you can imagine as soon as I start doing that, and you have a background in this, so I'm acutely aware of this, you know that that is not as easy as it sounds. And it's a complex business. 
And ideally, what you'd like to be able to do is to refer to somebody else or some material and so on to be able to do that. The degree to which we can do that is limited. And therefore, what we're trying to do is put in massive amounts of teacher support to do that. At the same time, and here is a tension in what we're doing, and I think everybody, again, has to understand this. At the same time, what we don't want to do is to overwhelm teachers with mountains of paperwork and guidance when, you know, two things I would say about teachers at the moment, they are very stretched, they've had a very, very difficult time, they're already tired. I'm willing to bet quite a lot of them are already looking forward to their summer holidays, thank you very much, you know, and I have massive sympathy with that. Do they want to be deluged with dozens and dozens of pages, you know, basically instructing them on how to do this? No, what they want is, I believe, some clarity of guidance and also the opportunity to come back to us and say, I don't get this, how do I do this, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we're trying to do is to set up a sequence of things where first the centre tells us what its policy is, how it's going to go about it. And we look at that policy that comes to us and we'll look at those policies and if we're happy with that, that's fine. You know, we'll just wave it through. If we're not, we'll go back to the school and say, maybe you should think about doing this a little bit differently. And that will be the first opportunity for quality assurance, if you like. The second opportunity is, as I've just explained, is lots and lots of material that teachers can use if they choose. If they're comfortable, confident, you know, they feel sure of what they're doing, they're working with colleagues, they can compare their outcomes with other colleagues, that's all well and good. If they need more in-person support from us, obviously online, we'll provide that. And that, if you like, will be a second phase of quality assurance. And then we will then look at the grades when they come in, they submit them, and we will do some heavy sampling of those grades, and we'll have a good look at them, some on a targeted basis, some on a randomised basis, and we will look at those. And if we're thinking, well, hang on a minute, this doesn't look right, you know, in one way or another, it doesn't seem to fit with either the centre's policy or the approach that we provided guidance on, then we'll go back to the school and say, look, can we see a bit more of this? We need to understand what you've done here. That will be the third phase, if you like. So quality assurance at the front end, quality controls at the back end, not absolute, not every single paper and every single student's literally physically impossible. You know, it's physically impossible anyway, but certainly in the time available. And therefore, what we're doing really is trying to provide as much clarity up front so that when we come to look at the grades, we can have some reason, well, in my view, a high degree of confidence in the overwhelming majority of circumstances, I am very sure that teachers will do the professional thing and follow the guidance they've been given and make the judgments that they are you know, professionally capable of making. And that's the best we can do in this environment. And that was certainly what we heard from Simon Liebus a few episodes ago, really relying on the professionalism and the unique position that teachers have as really the only ones who can have this holistic judgment. And as you say, they are professionals. So while there may be isolated cases, I'm sure, of people gaming the system because this is a very large population we're talking about and it would be naive to think it wouldn't happen at all for any reason. Actually, on the whole, I think it is absolutely incumbent on the profession and why they're there to want to do the best thing for the students. Could I just say on that, Nathan, people forget about this, is that there are cases of malpractice in an ordinary year. You know, there is no cadre of human beings, you know, of the order of hundreds of thousands of human beings that doesn't have, you know, people who, uh, you know, don't necessarily want to play by the rules. Exam boards are extremely experienced in the conventional exam series in identifying malpractice, investigating malpractice and acting on it. 
So to imagine that we're not capable of doing so in this situation would be naive, let's say. And I think that's interesting from the way you described the quality assurance through to quality control process there is that it sounded much more like a trusted advisor, critical friend kind of a role more than a policeman following the rules and making sure that the regulations are adhered to. But we still come to, I think, the interesting bit in phase three, if something en masse doesn't feel quite right to the exam board, as you said, and we're not necessarily in, I'm not talking about malpractice, but there's a general feeling that this feels off kilter without using an algorithm, because that was obviously the big no-no coming out of 2020. We don't like anything done by computers. How are you going to do that in reality? This feeling that maybe a school has over-egged or under-egged, I guess, their results. I think where we identify a school's process or results that we're not comfortable with, we will go back to that school and say, we need you to have another go at this. And, you know, I'll be very straight about this. I don't know very many head teachers who want to be that head teacher, all right? So people say, oh, well, that's not much of a, a stick, if you like. The answer is, well, I think most head teachers have a pretty high regard for their own professional reputation and standing, particularly with their own staff. So, you know, I don't think people are going to want to get into that place. The wider thing that you talked about there is if there's some sort of big thing across the system. I think that there are two issues there. One is this constant conversation about are we likely to see grade inflation? I think most people feel that two particular things about that. One is grade inflation over what? We're not comparing the same thing with the same thing. If you say sort of 2019 exam, well, those are examinations. These aren't examinations. Those were in a non-pandemic world. This is in a pandemic world. I think people have to kind of slightly let go of that and stop fretting about all that and instead concentrate on the stuff that I was talking about earlier with regards to students progressing. And the second thing is we are doing everything we can in advance to ensure that these grades are at least realistic. For me, that's the most important question. You know, what we don't want is for people to be getting bizarre grades, but I think we're doing everything we possibly can under the circumstances to prevent that, short of, as you say, you know, acting like a sort of brutal police force, you know, which we really don't want to do. I mean, how could you anyway do that? realistically because because how would you behave like that towards teachers and students who have gone through the most difficult time any body of students or any group of teachers have had to go through you know since the second world war bluntly you know how could you then go in with you know heavy boots on that doesn't make a great deal of sense to me and i think there are people who would like us to do that but you know it doesn't feel culturally right to me nathan no. And even I think ethically, if you thought it was the right thing to do, and as you say, I think you'd be hard pushed to say that it was. But even if you could, then on a practical sense, we're taking grades against a body of work that teachers will have delivered. So not the parts of the curriculum or the specification that they weren't able to touch. So even if you thought you could compare one teacher set of results with another, you are doing so in the full and certain knowledge that you are not comparing apples with apples because they will have dealt with different parts and a, a limitless array of evidence that could be provided to do that. So I would agree that actually it's it seems like a fool's errand to even try. And that's exactly where we're coming from. And, and the issue then is, can we try to arrive at as near consistency as is possible under the circumstances? And that's what we're striving to do in an imperfect world. Mm -hmm.
And I think, again, going back to your point on the grade inflation, I find myself agreeing with you again, that actually we're not inflating the grades based on previous years or a normal allowance of what would be allowed. Because, as you say, although the numbers are the same, which I will always come back to as being the sticking point, you've got something you think you should be able to compare the numbers this year to the numbers last year to the numbers before, but derived at in three entirely different ways over the course of the last three years. Last year was very much looking at if the student were to sit the exam, what grade ought they have got, so their potential. This year is very much more about their actual attainment to date. So what can you evidence and what can you achieve? Whereas, of course, in the very first year of these numbers exams, it was the exams. So it's very difficult, isn't it, for anyone really to argue about what it is that they're getting or what it is that they're not getting, isn't it? I think that's right. I think that the area for potential dispute, if you like, is going to be around whether schools have followed the process in an appropriate manner, as we've just been discussing, whether they've approached it with a professional bent of mind, if you like. And as I say, where they have, you know, we're not going to be in a position to challenge those judgments. You know, they are exactly, as you say, quintessentially teacher judgments. But we will be in a position to challenge where we feel that the process adopted has been inappropriate or people have not gone through things the way they should have gone through. And I think there will be some of that. But that will be no different, frankly, to an ordinary year. Because I think it'll be difficult for parents and students when they get their results, if they think that they should have achieved more. So... Little Johnny got a six, but I was certain that on a good day they'd get a seven. If they then turn to the publicly available descriptors from JCQ that came out looking at it, they are, I guess, deliberately vague. So a six has a description, but a seven is slightly more than a six, but maybe not as much as an eight. Eights are very much different to sixes, but not as good as a nine. So there, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot where you could actually point to and say, this is me. I fit very firmly in the seven camp when it comes to chemistry, for example. It's a very interesting point, this. Grade boundaries in an exam series are always areas for discussion and debate. And that actually, you know, what happens at the end of an exam series is the examiners sit down and think through grade boundaries with some care. And they are often quite fine professional judgments about how to arrive at those grade boundaries. It's very properly done. I've witnessed it. It's an impressive thing to watch, actually. I'm not sure I'd want to have the nerve to do it myself, but they are very, very good at what they do. And I think the degree, actually, to which that commands public trust is a testament to the recognition of that. In advance of having the material for that assessment, actually to set precise grade boundaries across, you know, as you've just described, across, let's say, a six to a seven and a seven to an eight, it's quite difficult to do, particularly when we don't know exactly what material the teacher is of necessity looking at. Therefore, we've adopted an approach, which I wouldn't I understand why you use the word vague. I'm not really cavilling on this, but it's not really vague, actually, Nathan. It's actually what it is, is deliberately there is room. For, it's broad. There is room for manoeuvre. And why do we think we're OK with that? And here is one very good reason which is that, of course, teacher X in Northampton and teacher Y in Weybridge don't get to speak to each other about precisely how they're devising these grades. And so you don't get that kind of moderation effect or you know, the standardisation, post-standardisation that you're talking about there. So you don't get that. And what you do have is a very interesting thing, which is that teachers are, I'm not going to say they're bad at, they're just they're not in a position to make precise judgments of an eight looks like that or a six what they are good at, and we know this from all the research, is they're good at relative judgments. They know that student 
X is a bit better than student Y and student Z is not quite so good as student X. And they know what that work looks like. So it's not just the student that they know, they actually know what the differential in the work is. Okay? And it's one of the key areas actually where I would place a fairly significant level of trust in teachers' professional judgment actually. The relative performance of their students, they tend to be pretty good at that. What they can't do is arrive at some national moderated judgment. So what we're doing is providing them with a mechanism for understanding where their group of students sits in a relative sense. They should be in a situation to be able to say, across those half dozen students, it's inconceivable that all of them are going to end up with a grade eight. So it's quite likely that the better one is going to end up with a grade eight and the slightly less able one is going to be sort of a six or maybe a seven, you know, and they'll sit down. And that's the kind of thing that will go through a teacher's mind. I have no doubt. Incidentally, do you know what? They do this all the time. Absolutely. I think it's easy to lose sight of that, isn't it? With homework being marked, with mock papers being tested, this idea of teachers in an examining role or awarding marks isn't new, it isn't fantastical, it's something that they do day in, day out. They're not technically examining, but they're assessing their students all the time, and they're not doing their jobs if they're not, and of course they do do it. And as I say, they are good at making relative judgments. And so what we're doing is placing our faith in that. Would we do this in an ideal world? No. Are we in an ideal world? Demonstrably not. I think what's been quite an eye-opener for many students and parents, I suspect, is that actually those grade boundaries move. They're in a state of flux. So it's not a case of if you get 40%, you'll get this number. If you get 60%, you'll get the six. And that actually, as you talked there about the examiners looking at the grade boundaries once the marking has happened to exercise their professional judgment as to what creates which grade boundary... It seems somewhat odd, doesn't it, that actually these are in states of flux and it's not always the same percentages? Firstly, they don't move radically, and that's a good thing. But the judgments have to be made, and incidentally, they don't tend to be made at every single grade boundary. Usually you're making calls to ensure that proportionately there is some kind of sense. It's worth explaining for people who are not buried in the arcane aspects of assessment, as some of us are, why would you have to do that? Well, one very good reason, I think people get this very quickly, actually, is that not all questions are comparable. So a question that was asked in 2018, you know, you might ask a slightly different question on the topic in 2019, which it transpires, and nobody necessarily knew that this was going to be the case, was a bit more difficult than the one that was asked in 2018. And so what you've got to do is to sit down afterwards in retrospect and look at that question and think, was that a bit harder than the previous question? Therefore, do we need to take account of that in the way that we arrive at marks that we've applied? And so that's what goes on. You know, if you want to lift the lid off the box, that's a little bit of the lid open. And there's nothing sort of malign or weird or indeed algorithmic about it. It is a straightforward judgment by professionals about how to apply that. It can only be done on an exam in retrospect. So both of those things are absent here. So it's a really good point about why this is fundamentally different to what we normally do. So I wonder, looking forward then to next year and... I appreciate that there are policy decisions and all other kinds of things that will need to happen before we can say definitively what the position will be. But thinking about the students who will be taking their GCSEs or their A-levels in 2022, they will have been affected by disruption in their education through early years. And a really interesting point made, I think it was Simon Leibus again, actually, 
that the A-level students taking their exams in 2022 won't actually have sat a formal exam because their GCSEs were obviously cancelled. So mindful of that, do you think that we will be looking at dispensations, accommodations or other changes to the nature of the exams for next year's intake? Firstly, not in my hands. This is a matter for, yeah, I suppose in the first instance, it's a matter for ministers and then it's a matter for the regulator and the regulator will, of course, will be making recommendations. I have absolutely no doubt. I've also absolutely no doubt that it will be a consultative process. And what we'll do is we'll get around to thinking about what is possible. We'll also think about what is it, what are the problems that we're trying to address and what is the most effective way of addressing. I'm happy to just talk a little bit about that in a minute. And I think then we will need to make recommendations collectively, in effect, about all the above. So this will take a bit of time to think about it. You know, it would be daft to pretend that, let's say, we as a board are not thinking about that already. Of course we are. It's also worth remembering that we went for a period from, let's say, September to the very beginning of January this year, preparing for an exam series in summer 21, this summer, which then got abandoned. And during that sort of four-month period, we thought through a lot of these questions. So we're not going to be starting from scratch. So, you know, we've obviously looked at various ways in which we could, let's say, adapt the exam system. So in other words, deliver exams, have exams, but for them to be adapted in some way to take account of, I guess, two or three things. One is the impact on teaching and learning time. Also, the, if you like, the emotional impact on that body of students, their inexperience with exams, their lack of time for preparation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then this key thing that everybody quite rightly is focused on is the question of differential loss. You know, some students having been more severely affected than others, and is there anything we can do to redress that? And the answer is we've looked at various things that can help to do that. There is nothing that can remove the issue. There are things that can ameliorate the impact. And it's sort of obvious what some of those might be. And I'm not saying we will go down these roads, but the range of candidates, if you like, of things we can do is pretty obvious in terms of reduction of content, enabling sort of a bit more choice about what you do, and so on and so forth. And my expectation is that we will need to go through first to look at those options and then really quite a sort of serious public discussion about you know, what do people feel about those various choices? It'll have to be pretty brisk. We need to get on with it. I think everybody's aware of that. At the same time, what we don't want to do is to cut into and undermine what we're doing in summer 21. Let's make sure that that's all rolling smoothly and then make sure that we sort out this other problem. I think what I would invite people to do is to look at the way that this process that we've just undergone was conducted. So, as I said, highly collaboratively, making sure that there's a significant consensus from teachers through to boards, through to the regulator, through to the government. We're all understanding what we're doing and we're all on board for what we're doing. I would expect that collaborative approach to persist. And as you say, I think you can see that a lot, although it was an eye-opener for many that there were so many different layers between pupil and grade, if you think, ministers, Ofqual, JCQ and exam boards, exam centres, that it seemed an awful lot of moving, different moving parts that, that needed to have a say. And certainly the Ofqual consultation, as you say, attracted a, a huge number of responses and really, really encouragingly, I think, a very, very high number of responses from students and young people themselves who were keen to have a say. 
But going back to what you'd said at the very beginning when we were talking about this year, having three months to prepare for the exam cancellation, because of course it was announced in Parliament back in January that that would be the case. We're in a position now where we do have more time on our hands. Is it unreasonable to expect that actually Ofqual would have started a consultation to look at it? Because if you know that there's going to be reduced content, for example, as one of the candidates, as you mentioned, in English literature, then you might not look at the poetry now, whereas some schools will already have done that. And that's obviously an example of an accommodation that was made for the 2021 exam series that you could elect to drop, as it were. Well, yeah, you could roll those calls forward. And that was really what I was indicating, is that we've done some of the thinking. I'm not saying that that's going to apply. I'm really not, because we're just nowhere near making those decisions. And as I say, ultimately, they're decisions for the regulator and for ministers. They're absolutely not for us to make. But do we know what the options are that are out there? I think so. There are some more complicated things to think through, which is exactly what and how we deliver them, how far do people want to go back towards exams or not, as the case may be. That's still a discussion to be had. I do feel, and what I'm trying to indicate is, of course, people like me, my colleagues, and there will be people in government and people in Ofqual who think about these things. Are we yet ready to go out there and say, is it this or is it that? Well, you know, overwhelmingly, we have been and frankly still are immersed in the business of trying to make sure that we're getting everything out in good order for this summer. And that really bears on this point that I guess I want to make most forcefully is we're all trying to constantly remind ourselves that the real focus here is supporting teachers and enabling students to move forward. And anything that we do in the next, you know, whatever it is, few weeks, that distracts from that is a really bad idea. And that's, if you like, where our heads are at, Nathan. You know? Yeah. As a parent of a daughter who will be sitting her exams in 2022, actually. Which ones? GCSE or A-level? GCSEs. Okay. With, I should say, a healthy collection of AQA courses in there too. As a father of a girl who will be doing her exams next year, I'm also mindful of what's in her best interest. So while you talk about enabling teachers and also being mindful of students, you're of course talking about this year's cohort, whereas we know that there will be an impact for next year. So anything that we can do to expedite helping them and making sure that they're prepared, I think, would also have to be a good thing. It would be quite simply absurd to disagree with you for all sorts of reasons, not just the personal one. I guess what I am saying publicly about this is, like everybody else, I would like us to resolve this sooner rather than later. It's not in any particular exam board's control, but of course we want to resolve it sooner rather than later. You know, we too have got stuff that we need to sort out. This business of exam cycles, exam seasons, as we tend to think of them, or series, you know, normally they take a very, very long time to prepare. And we are currently preparing a unique one for summer 21, another one for autumn 21, and we've still got to work out what we're doing in summer 22. So that also creates issues. So I don't think we should be focused on the, if you like, the stresses and strains for an exam board. I don't think that's the central question. The central question is the one that you pose, which is actually some of the students most affected by this pandemic are students who are going to be sitting their exams in 22 and 23 and, and well arguably beyond but at least for the next couple of years beyond this we've got many hundreds of thousands of students you know coming through who have been very very severely impacted by this a realistic situation of 
dealing with the burning platform as it is right now, rather than looking at the preventative measures for future cohorts? Well, you know, I think we've got to move on as soon as we can to the next question. You know, every one of these students is equally important. And so finally, for those parents and students, indeed, who are, I was going to say looking forward to, I mean that in a literal sense, as opposed to maybe emotionally, looking towards the exams as they would have been in their assessments in this year, and some of them may be feeling unsettled. Do you have any tips, any sage words or words of wisdom to impart on those parents and students? I think the thing to do for students, actually, really most importantly, is to talk with your teachers and your teachers will be able to explain to you what's going on, what they're doing, why they're doing it the way they're doing it, how they're going to arrive at their decisions, when they're going to arrive at their decisions, what you're going to learn about that and so on and so forth, and what support they're going to provide. Teachers will be doing double somersaults backwards to help on that front. You know, they're acutely aware of what their students have been going through. So, you know, I have complete faith. That's the big thing for students is turn to your teacher and, you know, check with your teacher about what's going on if you have any questions. Equally, you know, if you want to come to the board and find out what's going on, we are posting huge quantities of information and it is actually understandable and interpretable. It's not obscure and algorithmic and, you know, there's plenty of information on our website that explains to you what's going on and how and why. Um, feel free to do that. I would say the same with parents, actually. The big thing with parents, and you know, heaven knows parents know this, and you will know it in spades, of course, Nathan, is you know, the main thing you've got to do is to keep reassuring your child that teachers are doing the best they can for those students under the circumstances and are available to support them, and that's where they need to go. It's interesting, isn't it? You talked about the way in which conventional exam series is a stressful period of time, but it's also a known type of stress. It's stress that, by and large, we understand, and actually parents understand it because they endured it themselves. This is different, isn't it? It's a different kind of stress that parents may not have experienced. It's got a different quality to it. You know, I think that just, if you like, doubles and redoubles the requirement for parents, teachers and students to engage together and not try and stand off or be anxious about. So I, I would say to parents, look, if you're not sure what's going on, go and talk to your child's teacher and they will do everything they can to explain. And, you know, overwhelmingly, that is the case. You know, we have a great culture in schools in this country of genuine and proper support for parents. You mentioned the resources on your website. And this is true, of course, for many, if not all, exam boards, that questions are being made publicly available, whereas before they were the preserve in the domain of just teachers. How healthy is it, do you think, for parents and students to look through that content on their own rather than rely on what's happening in schools and talking to teachers? I don't think it's unhealthy. I come from a sort of, we would all be better off if we were more open and frank about things than if we tried to sort of kind of hide behind the barricades or behind hide behind arcana, you know, secrets and things like this. I really don't think that's very helpful. Having said that, I think it is very often hard for parents to interpret what is going on. It's hard for them to interpret a curriculum. So that's why, in the way I answered your question about, you know, support guidance for parents is, I honestly genuinely believe the right first port of call is the child's teacher. And if you look at something online, and you're not clear about what's going on there, then don't just sit there and kind of make an assumption, oh, it's like this or whatever, or fret about it. Go and ask the teacher. That teacher wants to do the best for your child he or she possibly can. 
And if you are on board with that, then the teacher's just going to use it. You know, it's, it's an opportunity as far as the teacher is concerned. They will want to help you, so don't be shy. Colin, thank you so much for your time today. I thought it was especially interesting to hear an exam board's perspective on this. It's difficult to see how exams could have ever taken place this year, given the disruption and massive disparity in access to learning across the country. And yet, relatively speaking, a decision wasn't made until quite late into the school year. Maybe that's because our entire education and even early employment system relies on students getting a grade to determine how well they've performed and their level of attainment. Controlled and standardised assessments delivered across a whole cohort are, it appears, the most straightforward way of doing that. But how could we have fairly and reasonably asked students to do them this year, given the enormous variation of topics that have been taught? And so this has given us a real paradox, hasn't it? That we seem to need exams, but we just can't run the exams. Talking to Colin, I really did feel this tension between accepting this year's grades won't be like previous years on one hand, and yet still trying to deliver an outcome in a format that all stakeholders, whether that's students, colleges, employers or, or others, would recognise and have confidence in. My own view has always been that sticking to the 9 to 1 grades or the, the A, B, C for A levels creates a problematic comparison to previous years. But I completely accept that it's only one perspective and moreover, I'm in a really luxurious position of not having to actually determine a thought-through solution to the problem. I think one of the most significant issues that comes from adhering to the established exam grades is of course that they're meant to represent a standardised view of relative performance. All students who get a 7 are in exactly the same performance bracket, or so you would hope. But as Colin points out, there's absolutely no chance that teachers are going to be able to evaluate their own students against other schools. It's just not practical or possible. Especially when you then consider the infinite possibilities of evidence, so then seems that there's no real hope that exam boards would be able to either. But, given the circumstances, isn't that okay? I mean, when we get caught up in this, the myriad of flaws that these solutions and approaches can bring, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that what we're talking about here with teacher grade assessments is that teachers are professionals. Why on earth would they unduly grade up or grade down for that matter? As Colin says, teachers mark and assess all of the time. It's baked into their role. And sure, they might not do it in a formal context, but in principle, this isn't a new idea. There is an undeniable issue of consistency, but without a centrally managed assessment and exam, there's always going to be the case, isn't it? I thought it was really interesting to hear about the quality assurance measures that Colin talked about. There's an awful lot happening here to try to deliver a set of results that can be relied on. Now, the cynics might see this as an algorithm in human form, but I genuinely got the sense that this is about the exam boards doing what they think is right to support teachers. I mean, no matter what your view on these alternative arrangements, I think that we can all agree that it's the teaching profession that are shouldering a lot of the responsibility and additional work. 
I come away from this episode with a deep and genuine sense that everyone is focused, quite rightly, on one main objective, and that's sorting this situation out in the best interests of the young people involved. There are lots of angles and moving parts to the situation that our exam year teens find themselves in, and I think it's unrealistic to think that there was ever going to be a consensus on what the one best thing to do is. After all, not everyone agrees even in a normal year. But I was really struck by what Colin talked about when he, when he was mentioning this collaborative process by everyone involved. Now, selfishly, as a parent of a GCSE 2022 team, I really hope that those same people will start collaborating sooner rather than later to plan ahead and deliver a route through for the future classes that have been similarly impacted in their exam studies. But I guess time will tell. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode as interesting and informative as, as I have. If you did, would you take a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too? It really does help us reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, if you get a chance to share the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media, that would be very much appreciated too. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.